I had asked uh, yesterday if we could begin our morning session at 745 uh, today just so I'd have an extra 15 minutes to talk about Wes Altry, but they didn't grant me that time, so I'm just going to eat into his time as much as I can. But um, you may or may not know they give us biographies for all of the speakers that uh, gives us some background information for them, and I'll tell you a little bit about that from Wes Altry, that he's the coordinator for the Bear Valley Bible Institute School in Simreap, Cambodia, that he's been involved in the work in Cambodia since 2010, since leaving uh, a job in graphic design. What that doesn't tell you, though, is about the heart that uh, Wes has for that work. And if you ever get a chance to sit in with a Devo or a class that he teaches if you ever get to uh, go over there, which I've not got to do yet, but to, to travel with him and see how he interacts with those people. Um, Wes stands out in every crowd, but specifically uh, in Cambodia because he's about 18 inches taller than everyone else. But, but the love that he brings to that work and the, the passion that he has for it is, uh, reminds me of the passion that you see in Paul and the way that he cared for the church in Corinth that we're studying about this week. He's been a member at Bear Valley since 1993, and he's he is a graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute, having graduated in 2017. What that doesn't tell you is that, as Wes will say, he took the 10-year program. Um, he, he took a lot of classes along the way, and a lot of us get to claim Wes as one of our classmates because of that. And that's a great blessing for all of us. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about those who refresh his spirit. And he's going to refer to them again in 2 Corinthians about those who refresh his spirit. And that's Wes Altry. I was joking with Melody this morning that Bear Valley is the one place that you can come and feel such immense love all the time. And at the same time have Dan Owen throughout the weekend tell you that your beard reminds him of an Islamic terrorist the entire time. So that's kind of like Wes. He's going he's gonna to pick at you, and he's going to have those little jabs, but you know it's all in fun, and then, and then when you least expect it, he'll pull you aside and put his arm around you and say, let's pray about that. <laughs> and so I love, um, I love Wes very much. He's one of my very best friends. What, uh, Denny's talked about his two best friends. I had to wait until I come to Bear Valley to meet Michael Hyde and Wes Altry, and they've been two of my very best friends ever since. And I love hearing Wes preach, and we're going to be blessed today as he delivers this message to us. So, Wes, come preach the word. Preach the word. You know, it occurred to me as Corey was talking that every once in a while a guy should probably just sit down in a quiet place and reassess his friends. <laughs> but uh, I love Corey, and I think somewhere along the way, Corey, you and I probably had some kind of a, an agreement that if we're going to be in eternity together, we might as well figure each other out while we're here on earth and have a good time with it. So love Corey and his family very, very much. Thank you guys for coming this morning. I know that there is a schedule out there which shows who will be speaking at 8 o'clock, so I thank you very much for coming this morning. I grew up playing baseball and basketball, but when I was in the 8th grade, I thought, you know, I'm going to run track this year. A lot of my friends were running track, and 
I ran the hurdles and I did the high jump. However, on one track day event, I was volunteered to be in a race in which I hadn't trained for at all, the four by 400 meter team. And they were very good that year. They were, had high expectations, but one of their uh, leg runners had gotten sick and so they volunteered me to be the substitute. And I really had no choice as we headed down from Evergreen to the big stadium at 6th and Kipling. And they put me in the second leg, you know the leg where they hide the weak link? They try to get you a lead and then the two strong runners behind you try to catch up for all of the, you know, your performance. Well, they only gave me two pieces of instruction as we walked out there onto the track. And they said, one, don't drop the baton. And two, stay in your lane. So that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. I'm going to try not to drop the baton, and I'm going to try and stay in my lane as we go forward. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19 is our text this morning. But as a quick refresher, let's take a glance back at this letter. It's early in the morning for a little bit of context and hopefully a little bit of momentum. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but the church at Corinth had a few issues. Now, it's true. I know that comes as a shock to some of you. But nonetheless, Paul still thought that they were worthy of instructing. He thought that they were worthy of correcting. He hadn't given up on them, even though when I read this letter from top to bottom, I begin to think, you know, they are so far off base. Why not just scrap it, go start a new congregation somewhere nearby? But I want you to notice the love and the patience that Paul exhibited with the church in Corinth. Think about the congregation where you belong and think about all of the little issues that you hear and are aware about and that come up and the baggage in the closets that have stuff stored in them. And then imagine Paul writing your church a letter. You would want that same love and patience written to you. I know we would. Paul has sent this first letter to the church at Corinth to address the causes and the divisions among the church. He's already mentioned the misunderstanding of the message of the cross. Paul's already stressed the importance of the Spirit's ministry. He's warned them as to how their rewards could be lost. He's spoken to the moral disorders in the church. He's discussed many aspects of the do's and don'ts of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He's attended to the subject of offering fools to idols and the indulgences of their previously fleshly cultures. Paul clears the air concerning public worship, including such things as women's veils, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. I'm certainly glad that carpet hadn't been invented by then, or we might be having divisions over what color to put down in the temple floor. That brings us into chapter 15. Paul says in verse 1, I am making sure that you remember the gospel which I preached to you. What was preached? The gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel's good news. Now keep that in mind moving forward. It's good news. It's not bad news, it's not sad news, it's good news. Who preached it? Paul preached it, not someone else. Not someone who gets online and throws out a blog just to stir up the pot. Paul preached it. Now who did he preach it to? He preached it to the church at Corinth. And subsequently, he's preaching it to every church that has existed since then and every Christian, including you and I here this morning. Verse 2. What gospel was that again, Paul? It's the gospel that saves you people if, if what, Paul? If you hold on to that gospel. 
Now that's an indicator that you can have the gospel as long as you hold on to the gospel, but you can also lose the gospel if you let go of the gospel. And Paul says, you know the gospel that I preach to you, otherwise, uh-oh, here it comes, you have believed in vain. Now why, would, why in the world would it be in vain, Paul? Well, we're going to get to that. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, Wait, why did you deliver it to us, Paul? Because it was of first importance. It was the top priority, that which I also received. What's most important, Paul? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, well, we all know that, Paul. Um, verse 4, and it's most important that he was buried. Okay, we're all aware of that too, Paul. Is that it? No, and wait for it, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, why did Paul and the others preach this resurrection? Verse 11, so that you would believe. Now, when someone passes from time to eternity, we often hear the phrase, <clears throat> I know they're up there watching down on us. I know they're in a better place. Comments like that. And this is common. Uh, it's a reference to an afterlife of a better situation, but it's really empty of any real definition. Most often, this vague remark is an indicator that people don't really understand much about the afterlife or the resurrection, for that matter. And from my experience, this is also a problem from within the church today. Did they mean that these people were perhaps some kind of a cosmic, ghost-like spirit being? Or do they even really try to identify those who have passed on because it's too difficult and we don't want to spend time trying to figure it out? Now, to bring some clarity to this resurrection issue, we should turn back the pages of time to approximately the year 55 AD and look at the city of Corinth. The majority of the population consisted of Greeks who believed in an ideology of an afterlife where the spiritual immortality was unrestrained by their physical bodies. At first thought, this sounds reasonable and perhaps even a bit refreshing. You know, after all, I'm not sure I want this body in the afterlife. At age 59, parts are beginning to wear down and break. In the first letter to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul, we read that the saints there did believe in an afterlife. However, their understanding was obviously lacking. Nothing in the B, uh, Greek background of the Gentile converts uh, at Corinth led them to believe in the resurrection of the dead. In general, they believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body. To them, the body was the source of man's weakness and sin. Death, therefore, was what liberated the soul from the body. Resurrection in their thinking would only enslave the soul once again. Greeks, Romans, Orientals, they all migrated to Corinth and they brought their belief system with them. And this resulted in some pretty strange practices that apparently characterized this church in Corinth as well, like the idea of being liberated from the fleshly body. More precisely, Paul addresses the issue of those who are outright saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Nevertheless, they did infer that their souls would go to a better place. Now, the very word resurrection indicates that the body laid in the grave will come forth, just as Jesus came forth. People, to have a resurrection, something's got to be resurrected. The definition of resurrection is something that was before will be again. 
It means to restore to life. Let me repeat that. Resurrection, uh, resurrection means to restore to life. So here's the focus of our lesson this morning. Paul demonstrates the significance of the resurrection by arguing the idea of what if there was no resurrection? Now Paul is widely regarded as having one of the most comprehensive vocabularies in all of the inspired writings. In fact, today's Greek professors at Bear Valley slyly grin as they dispense their exams that require the students to break down Paul's expansive sentences and paragraphs and thoughts. I can almost see the Holy Spirit looking over to the Father and saying, this Paul guy is wearing me out. And, and it occurred to me, can you imagine some of Paul's uninspired writings without the Holy Spirit having editing authority? But I digress. Having said that, in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 12 through 19, Paul strategically articulates his response with an unconventional, simple method of just two words. What if? It's brilliant. And I love it when Paul gets simple. For illustrative purposes, I want you to imagine a scene where Paul and the Corinthians are in the courtroom of absolute truth. You have Paul as both prosecutor of the false, but also the defender of the correct. He addresses the crowd as a seasoned lawyer and one who is also well respected among the Christians gathered. He uses those two strengths to his advantage, both, pro both prosecuting the ignorant and justifying the upright. Paul opens his papyrus ledger, if you will, and he says something like, let the record show that in these eight verses, the title of Christ is written down ten times. That's significant. And let the record show the phrase of no resurrection or not raised is mentioned no less than nine times. That's also significant. And let's make a special note of the term worthless, which occurs three times. However, what I want us to focus on this morning is the brilliant defense that Paul uses employing the two-word phrase, what if? Seven times in eight verses, Paul rhetorically asked the question, what if? Paul applies this expression to penetrate the stubborn and illogical-minded Corinthians. Now, I know this might be more difficult for some of you older folks, and I won't name names. I'd like to, but I won't. But do you remember when you were being taught a lesson by your parents and they employed the what-if method of teaching? For example, what if you slide down the snow-covered mountain towards the huge boulder in the high country 14 miles in two days from the nearest vehicle and snap an ankle without any painkillers? Or what if you have a pop bottle rocket war with your friends at the local 7-Eleven late at night and the cops are called? Y'all didn't know about that one, did you? Or what if you rode your brand new bike on Sunday morning? in your new three-piece suit when you were told not to, and what if the neighbor's dog runs out in front of you, turning the bike, your new suit, and the dog into one big giant yard sale? Not that any of those are real life examples, mind you, just illustrations to point out the what if method of teaching. And by the way, I think we renamed that dog Lazarus because he laid there dead for 15 minutes and then he heard the door of his house open up and he bolted in there like a piece of lightning. So uh, that was uh, something to witness. So I feel a little bit better about that whole deal. 
You see, these what-if questions weren't really questions at all. They were things that our parents wanted. They didn't really want answers to them, but they were more like seeds of parental proverbs for us to consider with the hope that we would grow in wisdom. Now, likewise, with Paul, these what-if questions were not really questions per se, as they were more of a hypothetical method of reasoning to distinguish between fact and fiction the logical and the illogical, the reasoned and the unreasonable. I might even go so far as to say the rational and the irrational. Now up to this point in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul has covered division in the church, morality issues, marriage issues, food issues, and worship issues. Sure, it's nice to know that we don't have any of those reoccurring issues in today's church, right? Now, as with any good lesson, Paul has power packed this final topic at the end of the letter. You know, in case they dozed off in the middle somewhere because it didn't pertain to them. And that's why I believe that chapter 15 deals with the resurrection, because it is most important. Now, we see the first of the what-ifs in verse 12, when Paul says, Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Notice that Paul doesn't debate whether or not Christ died because it's an assumed fact by the way it's presented in Scripture. So we can dismiss the entire argument of this context because Paul dismisses that argument. We all here agree that Christ did in fact die, right? Good, let's move on. And for that matter, is there anyone who objects to the fact that Jesus was also buried? Nobody? Good. Then let's keep moving on and let's get to the rock and the hard place you people seem to have put yourself in. The well-organized reasoning of Paul simply states that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then nobody who has died has been raised again, including Christ. Paul is displaying to them the contradiction <clears throat> between what they have been preached and what they are proclaiming. If Christ was not resurrected, then he himself was a liar. can almost hear the crowd stop and gasp if Christ was not resurrected by God then we're not going to be either people his life was resurrected so that we could believe in a God who can resurrect us if Christ hasn't been res resurrected then why preach at all if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead then we preach the death and burial of Christ only we preach two points of a three-point sermon and at Bible teaching schools all around the world we know what a homiletical faux pas that that is we leave out the most important part. We leave out the climax. Most religions can preach the two-point sermon of death and burial, but only Christianity can preach the third point of resurrection from the dead. Amen. The second what if Paul brings to the attention of the Corinthians seems to be a bit of a reality check regarding their statement in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Paul's bringing into focus for the naysayers that even if there was no resurrection of the dead, did they realize their thinking would include Christ himself? And if it includes Christ himself, where does that leave everyone else? I can still hear my dad's voice in my head from time to time. Who's here in the audience with us today? In my teens, okay, and into my 20s, I can still hear his voice. Son, did you think this thing through? I felt like he was almost embarrassed to add the son part on there because of the bewilderment of my actions or whatever I said. Paul is saying, people, 
did you think this thing through? I'm pretty sure you're not grasping the power of God here. This opens up a whole new can of grubby little worms, doesn't it? Regular mortals like you and I who sin are now without an intercessor to the Father. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we're without a mediator to reach the glory of God. Without the resurrection of Christ, we can get out our micron pens and we can start crossing out some passages. Like John chapter 11, verse 25, where Christ claims that he is the resurrection and the life. And what is all the talk about being raised from the dead, never to die again, and death no longer being master over us in Romans chapter 6 and verses 8 through 9? Should we mark that out? Put a little memo beside it and say, see note on John chapter 11, 25? If we do that, then we're going to have to put an asterisk by Romans chapter 8, verse 23, regarding the redemption of the body. And then we'll put an addendum on Philippians 3.21 where it talks about the transforming of our bodies into a humble state, into conforming with the body of his glory. You see, people, we're going to have to go get those Bibles with the big wide margins so we can cross out and put our own wisdom and our own notes to the side. Now, if you're just joining me online, I'm being facetious here. Now, just in case some of you are thinking, Wes is just about to veer out his lane, let's get back on track. It's interesting to me that Paul uses the title of Christ in this context, which means Savior. Paul is emphasizing the purpose of Christ, that is, to save the lost. It seems to reason that if Christ can't save himself from death, then he can't save anyone else either. You know, the lifeguard that can't swim isn't going to do me much good when I'm taken on water. Remember in Mark chapter 15, verses 29 and 30, when Christ hung on the cross and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and then come down from the cross. It seems as though that the Corinthians had inadvertently taken the same stance by not understanding that Christ had to be raised. Otherwise, the temple of God that Christ spoke of wouldn't be established. Paul binds Christ and the resurrection together, hypothetically arguing that they either stand united or they fall united. Now, the longtime preacher David Farr wrote this. Here are the facts in the sequence. Jesus died. His spirit went to Hades. That part, that is paradise. His body was buried. His spirit returned to his body and he was raised from death. However... The resurrection of Jesus not only exemplifies what happens in death and resurrection, and pay attention to this, it also is the supreme assurance that we also will be raised. Amen. The third what if follows quickly in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also in vain. Now another way of putting this is, if Christ has not been raised, then I've wasted my breath on you people and you've squandered your time listening to me. Paul has veered away from his normal style of complex writing with a more concise style of contrast in order to achieve the important thought to as many people as he can as quickly as he can. Now as Corey mentioned, I'm a graphic designer, I did that for many years and I'm still asked every once in a while to take a complex photo and then make it into some kind of a simple two-dimensional design. There are many ways to do this and oftentimes it requires some complicated procedures and in-depth of software programs, but if executed correctly it comes out with the desired result. But I'm going to tell you a secret. 
In Adobe Illustrator, there is hidden amongst most people, but known to us artists, a simplify button. You didn't know it was there and don't tell anybody because once in a while we do artwork and we do a simplify button. It's not quite the same result, but boy, a lot of people really like it and understand what I'm doing much quicker. Paul is clicking on the simplify button for the people there. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is worthless. It's pointless. It's ineffectual and of no value to us or anyone else. That's the simplify button right there that Paul's using. Now, in addition, there is a second portion of rationale to that statement regarding our faith. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Now, without Jesus' resurrection, there would be no Savior to forgive sins. Couldn't someone else forgive us? No. Corinthians, pay attention. Without a resurrection, we would have no assurance of his returning, and judgment would be a sad and foregone conclusion. Can you think of any more of an effective way of crumbling a Christian's foundation than to call his faith worthless? So if our preaching has no purpose and if our faith is worthless, then the simple conclusion is that our lives as Christians has no value. After looking at this, it should be obvious as to how important our faith is to God. And if our faith is worthless, then there is no hope of reuniting with him after we are separated by sin. Can you imagine Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 reading something like this? Now, faith really isn't the assurance of things hoped for because we need to see things to be truly convicted. And by faith is more or less an unverified theory. And the men of old didn't gain approval, but were given an attaboy and a pat on the back. Talk about crumbling a Christian's foundation. Our faith is extremely important to God. What if number four from Paul attaches itself with the idea that he is not done yet? In verse 15, moreover, in addition to, besides all that, furthermore, and to boot, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against that the Father raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Now, as the saying goes, let that just sit and breathe for a minute. If we say there is no resurrection of Christ, then we are bearing false witness and false testimony against God. You see, moreover is a term of adding on, or in this case, piling on. And Paul is piling on for added emphasis. We no longer have a preaching problem and a faith problem. Now we have a blasphemy problem. I don't want to let that sit and just breathe for a minute. Now, on the one side of the courtroom of absolute truth, you have God himself. Through the Holy Scriptures in verses 4 through 8, testifying that he raised his son, that is Christ, the Savior, from the dead. God then testifies that over a period of 40 days between resurrection and the ascension, that Christ appeared to Cephas and then the 12. And God further testifies that Christ then appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Then he testifies that Christ appears to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who certainly would have recognized him. And he also appeared to the, all the apostles. Finally, Paul testified that Christ appeared to himself as well. Christ appeared to these witnesses, not in some indistinct, cosmic, ghost-like spirit form, but in physical form. A form in which the disciple Thomas touched with his own hands and then believed in John chapter 20. Those who denied the resurrection of the dead had to come to grips with those who had seen Christ with their own eyes. 
They had to come to grips with those who had touched Christ with their own hands and those who had listened to him with their own ears. All of this firsthand testimony took place after Christ had been in the tomb. Think about this. If Christ had not been resurrected from the dead, then we claim that he was not deity. We claim that there is no Lamb of God and no great high priest. Now, if you're paying attention to Paul's usage of the phrase, the raised Savior, in verse 4, you'll notice that it is in the perfect tense, indicating that Christ is still alive. Paul didn't have to go to great lengths to describe some ghost-like spirit form that the Corinthians couldn't grasp. And apparently there were a lot of things that they couldn't grasp, but this wasn't one of them. They should have understood the usage of the raised Savior being alive in bodily form. The British writer Arthur Conan Doyle says, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Paul is bringing forth the obvious facts that they were missing. Now visualize the other side of the courtroom where some were testifying that there was no resurrection of the dead. Remember, Paul is both the prosecutor of the faithless here and the defender of God at the same hearing. And Paul, for added emphasis, repeats the notion that there is no resurrection in verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If we are still in our sins, then we can now feel free to just toss hope right on out the window. In this courtroom of testifying, we're watching Paul destroy the very idea of the dead not being raised. You know the saying about the guy who brought a knife to a gunfight? Well, I feel like Paul's the guy who brought the two-edged sword to the debate while the non-resurrectionists brought salad forks. Here is what we see the next two what-ifs restated by Paul. Now observe the shrewdness of Paul as he begins his closing argument. Paul highlights the problem of the anti-resurrectionists and their implications of hopelessness that they carry with them. At the very same time, Paul adds one more little pearl to the end of his thought. If all of this is true, then we are still in our sins and we are still corrupted. I can sense a long pause from Paul for added effect. And if that is true, then your souls, that is the souls of the Corinthians who thought they were free from their bodies when they died, were now shackled in sin once again. Paul is saying Christ has unchained you from the burdens of sin. He's resurrected. He's freed you. He couldn't, you couldn't wait to put the shackles back on. It's like watching a prisoner being released from prison. He turns right around, runs back to his prison cell, shuts the door and says, I'm free. And the guys next to him aren't. That doesn't make any sense. We are buried in baptism, in death to our sins. We are immersed in water and we are raised a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We don't submerge ourselves in the water and stay there until we drown. We rise up as new creatures. Why, wouldn't, why would Christ die on the cross if he wasn't to overcome death? Such a death would render him powerless. Now here's a beautiful description that I found about the resurrection by N.B. Hardeman. By his triumphant resurrection, he plucked the very rose of immortality from the midst of the Hadean realm and planted it upon the bosom of his open grave, thus evidencing the sublimity of his matchless power. Christ's power was validated by his resurrection. Therefore, there is actual power in the blood. 
for us to have hope of being resurrected as well. If there's no power in the blood, then we need to stop singing the song that there's power in the blood. And we also probably ought to stop singing, we serve a risen Savior and up from the grave he arose while, while we're at it. If there's no power in the blood, then the blood of Christ is as weak as the blood of sacrificial animals. Verse 18. If there is no hope in Christ, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul's metaphorical use of the term sleep kind of softens the idea, if you will, of death. Paul wouldn't have used that term if he wasn't sure that those in Christ wouldn't awaken to a new life after death. In Paul's hypothetical argument of contrast, those who died in Christ have perished along with Christ. Because remember, in that case, there was no resurrection. There is nothing left for the body or the soul. We must conclude that without hope, there is no sleep. And we simply return to dust without a place for our soul. We observe in many passages of the Old and New Testament where people were brought back to life, but then they died again. Well, so what's the significance of that, Wes? Listen to what Eric Lyons observes regarding the magnitude of Christ's resurrection. He says, finally, and perhaps most important, the significance of Jesus' resurrection is seen in the fact that he was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Since no one has risen from the dead, is still living on the earth, and since there is no evidence in the Bible that God ever took someone who had risen from the dead into heaven without his dying again, it is reasonable to conclude that all who ever rose from the dead died again in later years. Jesus, however, never died again. He rose from the grave to live forevermore. All others who previously were raised from the dead died again and are among those who sleep and continue to wait for the bodily resurrection. Only Jesus has conquered death. Only his bodily resurrection was followed by eternal life rather than another physical death. That takes us to the seventh and the final what if in Paul's concluding response to those who say that there is no resurrection. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. An Israeli scholar said, it is better to be disliked than to be pitied. And I'd probably have to agree with that. I don't want to be pitied. And Corey Sawyer's, don't you bless my heart either. We all know what that means. <laughs> it means he sure tries hard, but he's not going to get it. Bless his heart. That's pity. Being pitied in this context is not a good thing. It's an offense that Paul is using to wake up the anti-resurrectionists. Paul is saying that if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we have completely wasted our vapor-length lives here on earth. Paul is pounding the idea in the courtroom of absolute truth that if there is no resurrection of Christ, then we live a life of futility as opposed to a life of riches and fame, self-satisfaction, fleshly desires. Now, I know by the simple use of social media that there are some who pity me in my life as a Christian. Some who have basically said, Wes is a good guy, but what a pity. He could have really got somewhere in this world. Bless his heart. They see me as wasting a perfectly good life by not really getting mine while I'm here on this earth. You see, the people of the world today don't see a hope of Christ resurrected and how it will bless their life in eternity. If they are correct, then how sad is it then for me 
if I am shamed by the short-sighted people of the world. Those who don't believe in the resurrection have abandoned hope and they're getting theirs while on this earth. And quite frankly, if they're correct, then I don't blame them for getting theirs. But even with that outlook, however, the world realizes that there is an end of some kind. They know that they will eventually die and most likely will not be in good health all of their years. Even they realize that material things will eventually ruin. The power in their world shifts. Even the lusts of the flesh fade away with age. Dare I even say that the world would agree with James chapter 5 and verse 2 where uh, in regards to the riches rotting and the garments being moth-eaten and gold and silver rusting? So the question is, where's the hope in that life either? You see, Paul knew that there could be no message of hope for humanity other than the message of Christ's bodily resurrection. What would be the benefit of believing in Jesus in this life only? In conclusion, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no resurrection of Christ. And why was the tomb found open in the wraps left behind if there was no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then preaching the gospel is a lie, and we preach death and burial of a body only. Again, two out of a three-point sermon, that is woefully insufficient. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then our, Christians has, our Christianity has no faith. Our value has not any value to God or of the world. The value in our faith, Christ died without cause, even though Christ himself spoke of the value to him in John chapter 3 and verse 16. If there is no resurrection, then Christ died cruelly, and he died painfully for no reason at all. If there is no resurrection, then Christ foolishly subjected himself to the Romans and their excruciating methods of torture and crucifixion when he could have chosen a peaceful passing from this earth. If there is no resurrection, then nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if God created this world or even us if there wasn't a resurrection. Now, why do I say that? Because when God created this world and us, he should have known that we would sin and need a perfect sacrifice to overcome death. But without a resurrection of the dead, then it would indicate that he didn't know that we would sin which would make him non-omniscient. Or it might mean that he just wanted to skip the part of the resurrection. And when his son died, he is also forever gone, along with us, in the eternal realm of non-hope, making God the opposite of love and goodness. That brings up even more issues for us to deal with, like if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why prepare a place for us? If there is no resurrection, then why and how did Jesus raise Lazarus and the others from the dead? Was that some kind of an earth-only power that was he possessed temporarily? Paul is practically yelling, people, have you thought this thing through? Your stance on anti-resurrection has more holes in it than the person, Haggai chapter 1. It's there, trust me. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christians are hopeless in their future beyond this world. When we live without hope, do we really live? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the only life obtainable is a fleeting existence of physical matter during one's organic existence on earth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Paul says the world has a case for pitying us as the biggest of fools. Now perhaps in this courtroom of truth, we might also hear the testimony of the angel in Matthew chapter 28 and verses 5 through 9. Here, in further examination of the scripture, we read of the validity and the importance of Christ's resurrection. 
Three days after the death and burial of Christ, the angel testified, saying to the woman, He is not here. Where? In the tomb. For he has risen. He's done what? He's risen. Risen from what? He's risen from the dead. Just as he said, just as Jesus himself, God in the flesh, said on record for all of us to know and all of us to clearly understand. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. He did what? And when did he do it? He met them physically and he greeted them. And he did it after he was crucified and after he was buried in a tomb guarded by Roman soldiers that was sealed. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They did what, Matthew? They held his feet in their hands and they worshipped him. Now, perhaps some of the greatest words of hope regarding the resurrection come from the Gospel of John. When Jesus says to Thomas and the other disciples in John chapter 20 and verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We haven't seen him, so do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus the Christ? It's not a matter of semantics or theory that has nothing to do with our salvation. It has everything to do with our salvation. We miss this, and we not only miss the mark, we're not even in the hunt. We're not in 55 AD like the Corinthians. And I'll venture to say that the majority of the world today probably doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But do we? And if we do, how do our lives reflect that fact? Do they display a life full of true hope, true peace, and true joy to the world? Are our lives a living testimony to the world that we serve, a risen Savior? Do our neighbors see someone who is dying? Or do they see someone who is living for eternal hope and eternal joy? 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 10, Paul to Timothy, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, to you here this morning, I say, let's not be ignorantly concerned with the what ifs, but rather be grateful for the what is. Amen.